This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Philippians chapter 3. Now let's just get to the Bible. This is my favorite part, right? Uh, every now and then we've got to go through all that other stuff, but now we get to get to the Bible, which is my favorite part. We've been going through Philippians verse by verse. You've been seeing the message so far. I think this is message number 47 uh, in our series. And so our, our, our podcast is the best way that you can get caught up there at the Hui Kala app. Uh, and so uh, I would encourage you, if you missed anything, it's been a really, really rich book. Uh, and so we've been about, uh, I don't know, 18 months or so uh, in this one book so far, and we're past the halfway point. I'm really excited about that. And so today we're going to find ourselves in just one verse. And so if you're new to Hui Kala, you might say, oh, there's only one verse. It must be a really short message. <laughs> Welcome to Hui Kala, my friend. Um, the length of the verse has no bearing on the length of the message. Just know that. And so uh, if, you've, if you've never been here before, uh, sometimes we'll take three or four weeks and spend in one verse. And so t- we're not going to spend weeks in this verse, just one day today. But it's a lot of really good stuff in this one verse here. We're going to start in uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse number 1, just for, by way of context. Verse 9 is where we're going to spend uh, all of our time here today. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me is indeed not grievous, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Last week we took a look at the fallacy of false religion and how uh, Paul thought he could do all these religious things and earn God's favor, but at the end of the day he ended up counting those as a loss. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews is touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. They doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Verse 9 is where we're going to spend our time here today. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. I grew up in a, a Baptist church my whole life, and from the nine months before I was born, I was in church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Uh, my parents made it a priority to have me and my brother in church, uh, and my parents didn't know a lot about walking with Jesus. They were kind of first-generation Christians, kind of trying to figure it out on their own, but they knew this. Uh, if we want to raise our boys to, to love Jesus, we need to have them in church, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, as a teenager, sometimes I wasn't thankful for it, but I am now because uh, I'm here today because my parents made a decision to have me in church. The type of church that I grew up in was doctrinally the same as our church. We believed in, that the Bible was uh, our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. We believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, born of a virgin, the only way to heaven uh, is by faith and repentance in Christ. Uh, we believed uh, exactly the same things that we believe uh, from the Bible doctrinally. But the church that I grew up in from a philosophical standpoint was different in the way that they actually carried out their faith. What does that mean for us? And the church that I grew up in was a a small church in a southern rural town where everybody kind of knew everybody, and most families in the church had been there for uh, decades. The only person that ever I saw come to Christ were kids uh, who, when they got to be eight eight years, nine years old or so, put their faith and trust in Christ and got baptized. I never saw an adult baptized ever uh, in 18 years of going to church. Uh, It's just one of those things you never saw happen. I never heard of anybody getting saved uh, as an adult. It was just one of those things that, like, kids did. And the idea that, that I gathered, and I don't know if it was said like this explicitly, but what I gathered was this. Jesus is our way to heaven, and once you get your ticket punched, you kind of just wait for your number to be called, and then you, you get to go home. And so in the meantime, don't stir up a lot of trouble. Don't do a lot of bad stuff. Uh, stay away from the really big sins, or if you're going to commit the big sins, don't let anybody know about it, and keep an outside veneer of spirituality and what you do at, your, at home in your own time, that's between you and the Lord. Uh, that's totally up to you. And so, as you can imagine, growing up in an environment like that, I became very quickly disillusioned with what I saw as, quote, religion. That I see people who claim to be one thing but live a different way, and the Bible has a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. I was disillusioned by people who would 
uh, say really spiritual things on Sunday, but we would use foul language throughout the weeks. I'm not just talking about the teenagers that I hung out with. I'm talking about adults as well. And I thought to myself, if this is church, then church isn't really worth much. And if church is full of hypocrisy and hypocrites, I don't really need that. And uh, when I got to be about 18 or 19, I thought that I was really spiritually enlightened and really wise. And I came to the idea that, uh, you know, uh, I love God, but I don't really like the church as much and things like that. And, and just know those types of thoughts are not spiritual thoughts, they're carnal thoughts. Uh, if the Bible says that, that the church is the bride of Jesus Christ, that means it's really important to him. Can you imagine coming up to me and say, Pastor, I love you and I think the world of you, but I can't stand your wife. Can you imagine what would happen if you said that to me? I would take my pastor hat off and you and I would step out on the sidewalk and we would handle our situations well. If you're a woman, I would have my wife handle her, her, her business. So, but like, you just don't say stuff like that. If the church is the bride of Christ, I don't get to say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. It doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a package deal. And if Jesus loved the church and gave himself forth, then the church is really important. So you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater because it might be hip, uh, hypocritical or not fulfilling it, its function. Well, you need to find a healthy, thriving church to be a part of then instead. But I remember the idea that Christianity was this. It was a list of rules that you had to keep, otherwise God would be displeased, Otherwise, you'd embarrass yourself, and then you'd have to, like, apologize to the church. And so you wanted to try to stay away from the really big sins, right? Adultery and fornication and drunkenness. Stay away from those. But there were, I would say, I guess you could say respectable sins. There were things like gossip and anger and pride that everybody knew those were bad, but it's just not that big of a deal. And so this idea then hatched in my heart that Christianity was really more just morality and, and spirituality as opposed to a real relationship with God and something that God wanted from us. I began to see God's list of rules that he has as a way to not uh, make an embarrassment of myself or a way to, to maybe um, not make God angry and less of a way of God's way to protect me and give me the good things in life instead. And so I came away with a really warped perception of what Christianity and the church was because I would say it was part of a fairly unhealthy church to say. But the idea is that many times we get away with this idea that self-righteousness is what God wants from us, to keep a list of rules. That God really just wants us to be moral and stay away from really big sins and not embarrass him too badly. And that's what God expects of us. But that really couldn't be further from the truth. When we talk about the righteousness of God, Paul talks in, in verses uh, 5 through uh, 8 about his qualifications, his self-righteousness, which in the end he said, I ended up counting that as a loss and writing it off because it was no good whatsoever. When we think of the term righteous, it means acting in according with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. If we just want to pause there for just a second and think to ourselves, if righteousness means free of guilt and sin then there's no way that you and I of ourselves can be righteous. And so the whole idea of self-righteousness is a misnomer because I can never be free of guilt and sin. Going on, righteousness is the conformity or obedience to a standard or obligation that's normally understood to be morally good such that the expectations and requirements of a relationship towards God and neighbor are satisfied I boil it down really easily for you. The, the word righteous that we get in the English language comes from the idea of right wit or right way, right wise. It means to do the right thing or be on the right path. That's where we get our word righteous from. So if you want to think of righteousness, it's basically doing the right thing is righteousness. And so you and I try to have some level of self-righteousness. We try to do the right thing. We try to do good deeds or good acts. But the Bible tells us that, that the, there's a failure of self-righteousness, that it doesn't bring any good fruit at all. Self-righteousness eventually will let you down at some point. Paul says, hey, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was at the stock of, and tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not a convert. Hey, when it comes to the law, there was nobody more zealous about I was a Pharisee. You want to talk about trying to convert people from the church? I just persecuted the church instead. And hey, if you want to talk about somebody who is self-righteous, I, verse number five, he says, if you want to, to compare, I'm going to win every single time. Like you can't hold a candle to how good I am. That's what Paul says. But he said, the, at the end of the day, though, I ended up counting those things as a loss instead of a win because Jesus is really the only win. 
And so we see that self-righteousness will fail us every single time because the violation of the law makes us guilty before God. So if we try to be righteous, God has a standard set. In the Old Testament, he gave them the Levitical law that they had to keep. Kind of the nuts and bolts of it, the outline, I guess you could say, would be the Ten Commandments. And you and I have broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. You might say, well, I don't think I've broken all of them. Well, Jesus would disagree. But even if you had kept some of the law or most of the law, James makes it really easy for you. I can't wait to go through the book of James. Oh, it's going to knock your socks off. Uh, book of James on Sunday night. James says in James chapter 2, verse number 10, if any man offend in one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. So all you had to do is sin one time, and you're automatically guilty before God. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and say that people sometimes misunderstand this idea that sin is just sin. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Well, all sin is equal before God. Yes and no. And we need to be careful that we understand that lest we misunderstand the Word of God. So, first of all, when it comes to our standing before God, if any man sin in one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. Sin is sin in our standing before God. We're declared unrighteous before God because we've broken the law. One point, all of it, doesn't even matter. You've broken the law. Sin is sin. doesn't matter whether you told a little white lie, you cheated on your taxes, or you murdered somebody. You're guilty before God. But when we talk about the destructive nature of sin and the consequences of sin, it would be foolish for you to say that all sin is equal. Again, when we talk about the destructive nature and the consequences of sin, all sin is not equal. For example, if a man lies to his wife and tells her, oh, I just left the office, but he's still in the office, but he doesn't want to hear his wife gripe at him because he hasn't left work yet. Oh, I just left the office. I think traffic's bad. I'm going to be home late. And he lies to her about being home on time. Or the man has an extramarital affair, has a child out of wedlock, and then hides that from his wife. Would you say that those two things are equal? Of course not. Well, sin is sin. One is more destructive than the other. And so while all sin makes us guilty before God, sin is differing in its destructive nature and its consequences. And when God puts things into categories, here's the, the crazy thing that our world needs to wake up to is God puts sexual sin in its own category of the most destructive type of sin that there is, sexual sin. The Apostle Paul says that we should flee fornication. He challenges Timothy with that, but he tells the church at Corinth, hey, if any man sin against somebody else, he sins outside of his body, but any man that commits fornication, sexual sin, sins against his own soul. That sexual sin damages you on a personal level that you can't even fathom. Romans chapter 1, when, when man decides that he's smarter than God and he professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They think that they got it all figured out and they don't need God anymore. Now they're going to worship the creation rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. What is the end result of that thought process of choosing to be wiser than God? The Bible says that men worketh with men that which seems unseemly, and women left the natural use for a man and burning their lust towards one another. The end result thereof is homosexuality and sexual sin is the end thereof. So when we think we're wiser than God, God gives us up to our vile affections, which in the end is the most destructive type of sin that there is, and it's sexual sin. And then you might say, well, I'm not a homosexual and I don't get caught up in sexual sin and stuff like that. It goes on in Romans chapter 1 and says, and also them that are guilty are those that have pleasure in them that do it. And so for a guy who says, well, I've always been faithful to my wife but looks at pornography, you're having pleasure in sexual sin. And Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery, so you, my friend, are an adulterer. A woman that looks at pornography is an adulterer. Sexual sin, you're sinning against your own soul, and you're going to destroy your life. It, I absolutely cannot fathom in my brain how pornography is even legal, knowing what we know about the damaging effects of what it does in, on your, your head and your heart. This is even legal. The things that, that these people go through is basically sexual trafficking and prostitution. But somebody wants to put a freedom of speech label on it and call it okay? 
You say, you think pornography should be illegal? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you go to countries over in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, it's illegal to have pornography against the law, like thrown in jail. Like if you throw a cigarette butt on the sidewalk there, they'll, they'll arrest you and put you in jail. You get caught with drugs, they, they might hang you for it. Like, they're no joke. Because a Muslim country understands the destructive nature of these things that the, our world wants to say, these things are okay. But God says, hey, I've got a standard of righteousness and you've broken every single rule that I have. So you and I, when we think to ourselves, I'm not that bad of a person, we need to understand that we're not scoring ourselves off of God's scorecard. Romans chapter 3, verse number 19 says this, Now we that know that we that know what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. God says it this way. I've given you my standard, which is found in my word, so that you'll know when you step over the line. And here's what he says. And you've all stepped over the line. And here's what, I, lo- I love how the Bible is just so crystal clear, if you'll just read it. God's given us his law so that every mouth may be stopped. You want to argue with God? <laughs> Hold your tongue for a second and hear what it has to say. You got an argument against why you're not such a bad person? Just hold your tongue, shut your mouth, and hear what God's word has to say. That every mouth may be stopped. That the law makes you guilty. You can't be good enough to overcome all the wrong that you've ever done. You just can't. It might absolve our conscience for a little bit and make us feel better about ourselves, but it cannot cover our sin because as righteous as you might be, it isn't enough. How much good do I have to do to make up for all the wrong that I've done? I don't know. What's the penalty of looking at a woman with lust or looking at a man with lust? What's the penalty of, of grumbling in your head about your boss? What's the penalty of pride? What's the penalty of gossip? How can we make that better? We gossip about somebody at work. How do you fix that and make it right? In a self-righteous way, you can't. What, do you go behind their back and say something good that makes up for the, the negative things you said? Like it logically just doesn't even make sense. So God says, I've got a way that you can make it all right. You break the law. Here's the penalty. The wages of sin is what? Death. You're going to die. And you're not only going to die physically, you're going to die spiritually one day. That's the penalty of your sin. You're going to die and spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell that burns with real fire, that there's no second chances, where the Bible says there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve because we've broken God's law. But somehow, somewhere, man got this idea that maybe I can do enough good stuff that will make up for all the wrong that I've done, and when I get to heaven, there will be this big scale that puts my good on one side and my bad on the other, and my good outweighs my bad, and I don't have to go to hell. No, if any man, if in one point he's guilty of all, and what's the consequence? Death. It's settled. So self-righteousness doesn't go anywhere because you can't do enough to make it. That's the problem with false religion, like Catholicism. Did you know that when Mother Teresa died, they held a funeral mass for her? And they prayed that God might have mercy on her soul and that her time in purgatory of purifying would be short and she would be received up by the Lord and his angels. Think about it. You think you're better than Mother Teresa? I mean, if we're going based on merit, if Mother Teresa didn't make it, like what hope do you and I have? Like seriously. Like when you think about the epitome of service and selflessness and poverty and and giving, like if Mother Teresa didn't make it, you and I don't have a chance if we're going based on merit. And again, this system of false religion is so broken that even when their own popes die, they light candles and pray that their popes would possibly be received. And like, look, if the pope isn't going to make it, there's not hope for the average Joe, for sure. That's why false religion and self-righteousness is so bankrupt, because you can't possibly do enough. And so often when I talk to people about the gospel, I talk to them about, their, about my faith, and I say, hey, if you die today, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? And they say, well, I hope so. I think so. Can anybody really know? 
Absolutely. 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, even to them that believe on his name. God wants you to be 100% sure that you have heaven because it's not based on how good you are because you can't do enough. And that just goes to show that our self-righteousness is no righteousness at all. Again, the term self-righteous is a misnomer. There is no self-righteousness. There is only self-condemnation. Because you can't be good enough to be declared guilt-free, off the hook, satisfied all of God's agreements. You just can't. And so... Romans chapter 3, verse number 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. None. Zero, zip, zilch. You can't do it on your own. And so then people would say, well, then why should I even try? Why should I even try to be a good person? Because we don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we are saved. And if you're not saved, your good works are not work, good works at all. Because self-righteousness is actually offensive to God. Every time we try to do the good, right thing, try to be good on our own to cover our sin, our self-righteousness is actually offensive to God. It disgusts Him. It makes Him sick. Isaiah is ridiculously clear. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse number 6, but we're all an unclean thing. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. <clears throat> that phrase there, filthy rags, I don't mean to be crude. I just want to give you an understanding of, of what Isaiah means here. He doesn't mean rags like you wipe the kitchen floor with. The term filthy rags there is the Jewish word for used feminine hygiene products. You look at that and you go, ooh. It's not just gross from a hygiene perspective. For the Jews, they were taught from the very beginning from the law that blood is untouchable. It, it, it's gross. Don't be around it. Don't touch it. Blood is off limits. On top of that, when a woman was in her time of the month, a man wasn't supposed to be anywhere near her or touch her because she was deemed unclean during that time. And so these unclean used products in God's sight, would be disgusting, but that's what God sees when we try to be really good. God's just like, no, that's offensive. That's gross. Get that away from me. I don't want any part of it. And again, I'm not trying to be crude or rude or unkind. I just want you to understand when it says filthy rags, that's what it means. God is repelled by our good works. See, that's the crazy thing about false religion. It has this idea that, that God is drawn in by how good we are or God sees inside of us an inherent goodness. That God peers deep into our soul and sees the beautiful butterfly that we would be if we were just able to get out of the caterpillar skin that we're in. No. God sees into the depths of your soul and he's disgusted by what he sees. The idea is not that we have this rough exterior like the world tells us that we just need to peel off the outside layers that have been hurt and, and tarnished and bruised by this world and inside we'll find this beautiful creature that's waiting to get out. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that the best thing you have is what's on the outside, that the deeper that we get into your heart, the more foul and repugnant and disgusting and pus-filled your heart is. The outside's the good part. The Bible says the words that you speak are just an overflow of what's in your mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your vile, wretched, terrible speech is just an overflow. We haven't even plunged the depth of what's in your heart. So again, the idea that you and I can be good enough for God to receive us, just it couldn't be further from the truth. And God is actually offended by that. So here's, it, it goes so far as to this. God didn't come to save really good people who just needed an extra leg up. God came in the form of Jesus Christ to save sinners. He didn't come to save religious people who just need that extra push over the finish line. So all of our attempts at self-righteousness are an offense to God. And we're all born into this world as sinners. We see in Romans chapter 5, especially the imputed sin of Adam. And this is really important to understand why we can't be righteous in and of ourselves. 
The idea of being imputed is you're given something from someone else that doesn't belong to you per se. And so the Bible says that when Adam was born into this world, that sin passed upon all men. Keep your finger here in Philippians. We're going to go come back in just a sec. But turn to Romans chapter 5 if you would. You might have these verses in your notes, but I want you to turn there because I want you to mark them in your Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. You should circle verses 12 through uh, 15. Whereas for by one man, being Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. So sin has always been in the world, but it began to be passed on when Adam violated God's law. And God's law was really simple then. Don't eat of the tree. Simple. Adam did it, he broke the law, and now the Bible says sin and death has passed upon all men. And so, if you have an earthly father, you are a sinner. Because your sin nature was passed from Adam to all other men, so everyone has a sin nature, you're passed to it by your father. Say, thanks dad, appreciate that. Oh, thanks Adam, way to go. So, if we were to have a Savior, the Savior would have to be without sin. And the only way for a Savior to be without sin is if he didn't have the imputed sin of Adam. Which means that if we were to have a Savior, he couldn't actually have an earthly father because his earthly father would pass on his sin nature. So his father would have to be someone who is sinless. I don't know, say, the Holy Spirit of God? Yes. This is why. The virgin birth of Christ is a non-negotiable Bible doctrine for Bible-believing Christians. If you say that Mary wasn't a virgin, friend, you are not a Christian. Simple as that. Litmus test. Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. He was a sinner. If he was a sinner, we need a new Savior. Because if Jesus isn't it, we're toast. So Adam imputed his sin, passed on his sin nature to every single man so that now all men have sinned. Verse number 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them had, that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that is to come. So from Adam to Moses, there was no Levitical law per se, but everybody sinned, not the same way that Adam did by taking of the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to, but they sinned in their own right because they rebelled against God. Verse number 15, but not as the offense, so is also the free gift. For though the offense of one, many be dead, because of Adam's sin, all of us are going to die. Much more the grace of God, the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded to many. So we, here we see where Adam's imputed sin is upon us. And so all of us have sinned because Adam set us up for that. And again, if you have children, you didn't have to teach your kids how to sin. They figured it out on their own. You know why? Because we do it by nature. We need to learn to be godly because that's opposite of our nature. We need the Holy Spirit inside of us to help us to change because we can't do it on our own. So we see the imputed sin of Adam, but now we see the inherent righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was never declared righteous. Jesus always was righteous. Jesus didn't have to be purified from sin. Jesus always was sinless. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was, was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, and when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Hebrews 7, 26, For such a high priest came to us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Again, Jesus Christ was born righteous. He didn't need to be made righteous. He was righteous. Again, a point of diversion. If at any point anybody claims that Jesus was just a man who became God, you are not a Christian. That is a false doctrine, false religion. Jesus Christ has always been God. Philippians chapter 2, we, we studied that when we went through Philippians 2. 
Again, if you say that Jesus Christ maybe made some mistakes or uh, maybe sinned some, it just isn't recorded in the Bible. Friend, you are not a Christian because Jesus Christ was, was the holy, sinless Son of God, born of a virgin. Those are non-negotiable Bible doctrines and a story. If you don't believe it, you're just not a Christian. If you teach something other than that, you are a false teacher. Really simple. Because here's the thing. If Jesus Christ wasn't sinless, then he could never pay for my sin. I can't pay for your sin because I have my own sin debt with God. Had Jesus Christ not been sinless, he would have owed God something. And if Jesus can't be our Savior, then we need a new Savior. And if Jesus wasn't sinless, then God didn't keep his promises. The Bible isn't worth the pages that it's printed on. And we're all wasting our time this morning if Jesus sinned. We need to find a better belief system because this one stinks. But if Jesus Christ is who he says that he was, and he was, and if he was sinless, and he was, then he is the only hope that we have for a Savior. So just as Adam passed on his imputed sin nature to us, so Jesus Christ offers the opportunity to pass on his imputed righteousness to us. Again, imputed means I didn't have it, but somebody gave it to me. I didn't have sin until Adam gave it to me. I don't have righteousness until Jesus gives it to me. So there's no self-righteousness. That's garbage. That's worthless. There's only the righteousness of Jesus. So how do I get that? Very simple. Faith unlocks the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Faith, faith alone, that's it. Turn back to uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse number 9. Being found in him, not having my own righteousness, that was worthless, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So how do we get God's righteousness in our life. How do, do we get declared righteous? Faith. That's it. Jesus says in John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. John chapter 3, verse number 3, so crystal clear you can't miss it. No man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Friend, has there been a time, a date, a place in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior? If not, you're not on your way to heaven. You must be born again. Now again, I don't believe that you have to know the date or the time or where you were or who was with you or what the words were that you prayed or anything like that. There must be a time, a date, a place where you put your faith and trust in Christ. Sometimes people say things like, well, I just always believed in God. As long as I can remember, I just always believed. That's like me asking you when your birthday was and you say, I don't really have a birthday. I've just always been. Like, I don't remember a time that I wasn't here. I really don't. I've mean, just always been here. So as far as I can tell, I've been around forever. No, you had a birthday. Jesus said this, just as a man was born of the water or a physical birth, not talking about baptism there, it's talking about a physical birth. Just as you're born of the water, so you must be born of the Spirit. So you have to have a spiritual birthday, a time where you were born again. And being born again is not some difficult process we got to go through. You don't have to sit through a, a class where we teach you how to be a Christian or you don't have to go before a board and answer a lot of questions. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 make it really simple. If you believe it in your heart and you confess it with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you can be saved. So really, how do we unlock the righteousness of God, faith, and repentance? That's it. Repentance, I agree with God that I'm a sinner. I agree with God that I have wronged him. I agree with God that I need a Savior. That's repentance. The Greek word that's usually used in the New Testament for repentance is the word metanoia. means a change of mind. It's a change of mind that results in a change of heart, which results in a change of actions. And so if I truly repent, my life is going to change. So I don't get the righteousness of God by being a good person. I don't get the righteousness of God by going to the right church or doing the right things or doing religious works. I get the righteousness of God by believing that Jesus Christ died for my sins and accepting him by faith as Savior. That's it. Romans chapter 1, verse number 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Keep your finger here in Philippians. We're going to come back in a second. But turn back to Romans chapter uh, 8. If you've never read through the book of Romans, you should... 
if you've read through the book of Romans, you should read it through it with a highlighter and just mark it up because it is so, so rich. Romans chapter 8, verse number, we'll take a look at verse number 3. I often tell people who are exploring the faith, if you want a place to start reading the Bible, or even if you're a newer Christian, read through the book of John, and then read through the book of Romans. The book of John is so rich. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John makes it very clear from John 1, 1, Jesus Christ is God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To them that believed on Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. John 1 is just rich. You get to John chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. The man shall see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How am I, who are old man, be born a second time, enter into my mother's womb? No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being born of the Spirit of God. Jesus says, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, it's so good. He goes on in the next verse to talk about how the, the, God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him that might be saved. Jesus didn't come to send people to hell. Jesus came to save people from hell. Oh, man, it's so good. Then you get to John chapter 4. He's sitting with a woman at the well. He says, hey, can I have something to drink? She's like, you're a Jew. Why are you asking me a Samaritan for something to drink? Oh, it's so good. He's in John chapter 6. Jesus is feeding thousands of people. And he says, guys, if you don't eat in my flesh and drink in my blood, you can have no part of me. From that point, people walked away and walked with him no more. He turns to his apostles and he says, well, you also go away. And Peter says, one of the wisest things that Peter ever said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Like, it's just as you read through the book of John, it's just so rich, so good. So I tell people, read through the book of John because you find out Jesus Christ is God. Here's why he came and here's what he did. And then you turn to the book of Romans and you read why you need the Jesus of the book of John. And you see your sinful condition and your standing before God and how the law couldn't save you and being a good person couldn't save you, but Jesus Christ came to save you. Oh, those two books together, it's just like a one-two punch. It's just so good. Oh, man. Romans chapter 8, verse number, uh, we'll start in verse number 1. This is good. You should circle verse number 1, start it, underline it in your Bible. There is thou for no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Why is that important? Because if you have been born again, there is no condemnation for you. It's not there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ, who don't mess up too bad, or who don't fall away from the faith, or don't backslide, or don't get into too big a sin. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ. If you've been saved, if you've been born again, there is no fear in your heart for condemnation that you'll ever be sent to hell for what you've done, because Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Oh, man, that verse is so good. Verse number two, for the law of the spirit of life, as Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. Hey, the law, the Old Testament, all it told me was how bad I was and that something had to die. But the spirit made me alive and set me free from the law of sin and death. Verse three, for what the law could not do, being a good person, hitting all the right marks couldn't do for me, and that it was weak through the flesh because I couldn't fulfill my end of the bargain? God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Oh my goodness, that's so rich. You and I couldn't fulfill the law no matter how hard we tried. Try to be a good person, you're not going to make it. If it's up to you, you're going to lose 100% of the time every single time. So God sent his son to take on the form of sinful flesh. Jesus wasn't sinful, but it says he took on the sinful form that you and I have, appeared to be just another guy, so that he could fulfill the law. If you remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. God had a list of rules, and Jesus checked them all off. Like, how awesome is that? Like, you can't do this, but I got you. And Jesus checks them all off. So what the law tried to do to make us really good people couldn't do, that God sent his son to fulfill the law so that we could have righteousness, not of our own self, but our righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's the good stuff. Verse number four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk after the flesh, not after the spirit. 
here's the big idea. That when God looks at you now, after you've been saved, after you've been born again, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your failures, he sees you as righteous. Clean. You're good. But I still feel guilty for the stuff that I've done in the past. I don't know why, because God doesn't see it. You know the worst part about Christians who have been forgiven of their sin but carry guilt and shame? They forget that Jesus put that guilt and shame to death so you don't have to be embarrassed anymore. You don't have to be ashamed anymore. That Jesus took upon himself your sin, your guilt, your shame, you put it to death once and for all. Quit carrying it around. You're set free from that. And the only person who wants you to live to keep you living in guilt and shame and caught up in the, the drones of sin, the only person who wants it's the devil. He just wants to, he can't steal your soul, but he can steal your joy. Don't let him. So you and I declared righteous. How does God do that? The word justification. Justification declares us righteous before God. The word justified in the Bible is a legal term, means declared righteous. Now, you and I aren't functionally, practically righteous. We still sin. I still sin. I'm not perfect. But God has declared me righteous because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And I am justified by faith. Romans chapter 3, if you're still in Romans, turn back to Romans chapter 3. You often hear me quote Romans chapter 3, verse number 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says this, being justified freely. Now remember, justified means declared righteous. So you are made righteous freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We don't have time to unpack verse 25, but you should study it later. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in, in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. I don't have time to unpack that, but there's, there's like three messages in that, whole, that one verse right there. Propitiation is a good Bible word. If you have an English translation that doesn't use the word propitiation, you're missing out on a really good Bible word. It basically means a satisfactory payment and a blood covering for sin. All in the word propitiation. It's so rich. Propitiation in what? In the faith of his blood. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and his blood can cover and actually pay for my sin. That's what declares me righteous before God. Through uh, Verse uh, 25 to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Forbearance means that God is holding back his wrath and judgment. God is merciful. God's waiting for you to come to faith. God's waiting for you to put your trust in him. He's waiting to forgive you of his sin. He's forbearing his wrath. But the Bible says that God's spirit will not strive with man forever. There's coming a day where God is going to unleash his wrath and you're going to be responsible 100% for your sin. But God's given you a minute to get your stuff together. He's given you an opportunity to put your faith in him. But if you're willing to do that, he's willing to pay for your sin 100%. Zero balance for you, paid in full. Justification is a beautiful Bible word because not only does it declare us righteous, justification, the word justification means right clothing. And the idea of justification is this, is that my sin is placed on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is placed upon me, sometimes referred to as the beautiful exchange. My sin upon Jesus, his righteousness upon me. That's why when Jesus Christ hung on that cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because Jesus Christ was forsaken by God because he had become sin for you and I. Jesus bore in his body my sin, your sin, and the sin of mankind. In that moment, God turned his back on his son because he could not see his son, not in physical pain. He could not see his son in sin. That's heavy. And for the only time in eternal history, God the Father was not at one with God the Son because of my sin, because of your sin. 
So whatever ridiculous, foolish theology there is out there that says that God doesn't care about your sin, he just loves your little heart, could not be further from the truth because your sin, my sin, executed his only son. The idea that he's soft on sin, it's just a foolish thought. God hates sin with every fiber of his being. So much that he was willing to pay the highest price to cleanse you from your sin, to cleanse me from my sin. And justification put my sin upon Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the best verses in all of the New Testament, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Get that? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. Well, how do you get the righteousness of God? Again, go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse number 9. What does he say? The righteousness of God in faith. The day that you were saved, the day that you were born again, you were declared righteous before God. You put your sin upon Jesus, you're not responsible for that anymore. You don't carry that anymore. Jesus Christ carried it and he put it to death. And as he hung upon that cross, after God had forsaken him, he said these words, it is finished. Boom, paid in full. Done and dusted. My sin is forever under the blood of Jesus Christ. And where sin did abound, Romans chapter 5, God's grace did much more abound. I can never possibly outsend the grace of God because Jesus' blood is so powerful that it covers the depths of my sinfulness. Oh my goodness. Justification, though, is by faith, and justification has always been by faith. People often ask me, Pastor, if you get saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, how did people in the Old Testament before Christ came, how did they get saved? Well, the answer is the same. I'm justified by faith. They were justified by faith as well. Now, they didn't know that Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem in a manger of a virgin, but they knew what God said. God said, here's the law, and when you break it, here's how you make it right. And they would have a day of atonement where they went, and they made sacrifice in the temple to cover their sins. And while the Bible tells us that the blood of bull and goats could not wash away their sins, their act of obedience to God's law and God's word was a sign of their faith that they believed God's way of making things right. And so they were justified by faith. Romans chapter 4, verse number 13 says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. So Abraham didn't get all that he got because of the law, but through the righteousness of faith. God told Abraham to go, and he went. God told Abraham to do this, and he did it. God told him to circumcise his boys, and he circumcised his boys. God gave him instructions, and he obeyed him. And Abraham was justified by faith. It's always been by faith. And any system that anybody ever sets up to say that there's another way other than faith is a false religion set up by the devil himself. So, Jesus is... Fulfillment of the law makes faith the only avenue to righteousness. That's it. (laughs) Because Jesus didn't destroy the law, he fulfilled it. means the law no longer has power or effect over us. So I don't have to be good to go to heaven. But it does mean that the only avenue to God, to heaven, is now faith in Jesus. That's it. It's the only way that you have. So sometimes people ask the question, well, what about, uh, you know, Jews that still carry on Jewish traditions? If Jews are basing their faith on the traditions of the law to get to heaven, Jews are going to go to hell like everybody else. Anybody whose faith is not in Christ alone is going to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. That's just that. Or are Jews still God's people? God says he'll never leave his people. They will always be his people. And that's why for us as, as Bible-believing Christians, I'm not into politics, this is not a political statement, but we need to make sure that we are always friends to Israel, always. How do you take a group of people who have just a small strip of land, they're one of the most powerful people on the planet because they're God's people. Have they rebelled against God? Yes. 
But it's not the first time. Read the Old Testament. The, whole, the Old Testament's a whole story of their rebellion against God. But God continued to bless them. And so they're in a unique place. But Jews still need to be saved because keeping the law couldn't save them. So now Jesus, having provided justification, makes the only way that you and I can be declared righteous faith and faith alone. Romans chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. Turn over there, Romans chapter 10. This is the last uh, verse we're going to take a look at, and we're done. Romans chapter 10, verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Just stop for just a second. Paul wanted people to be saved. I want you and I to make sure that we adopt the heart of Paul and more importantly, the heart of our Savior and that Jesus wants to save sinners and I want my heart to be a heart for sinners. I'll admit, there were times in my life where I was, here's the word I'm going to use for you. There were times in my life where I was self-righteous and I didn't care about sinners because you deserve what's coming to you. I'm living right. I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven. And you're just going to get what's coming to you. And I can't wait to see it happen. What a terrible attitude to have. I was so proud. I was so self-righteous. I've repented to God a dozen times for that spirit. But where everything shifted for me is when I saw people the way that Jesus sees people, a heart for the lost. It used to be when I would see Jehovah's Witnesses standing on the sidewalk with their big rack of magazines, I thought, I'd love to see a big gust of wind blow those magazines down the street and laugh the whole time. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Because God controls the wind. He takes that false doctrine and kicks it to all four corners of the wind and see them running around trying to pick their magazines up. Wouldn't that be funny? But then I thought to myself, those are souls that Jesus died for. They're not a joke. It's not funny. They're out there because they think that they can earn their way to heaven. That breaks my heart. That breaks the heart of Christ. The fact that people would prop up a false religion in the name of Jehovah God that would send people to hell, that hurts. That hurts the heart of Jesus, and now it hurts my heart. I don't want any bad to happen to them. My heart breaks that they've caught up in a false religion and a false system. And so I want you to have a heart for the lost. It's one thing to say, oh, I got my ticket to heaven punched. I think I'm good. It's another thing to say, hey, I got my ticket punched. Who wants to help me fill this train up going to heaven, right? I'm trying to get as many people on the bus as I can to go with me. I want people to be in heaven one day because of the difference that I made. Not so that I can have a feather in my cap, but so that my father can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so I want you to have a heart like Paul Jesus, when he looked at, the, at Israel and saw them as scattered, having sheep with no shepherd, he was moved with compassion. I'm just going to shoot you straight. I'm not a compassionate person by nature. I'm just not. I don't see kittens on the side of the road and want to rescue them and put them in the back of my car. I don't. I usually swerve to try to hit cats. Uh, but um, I'm just saying if you're still awake, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But I'm not compassionate like that. Like, you see some, some puppy who needs a home? I don't, it doesn't bother me. You know, they used to play that, the, I'm sorry, man. Uh, you know, they used to play those Humane Society commercials with Sarah McLaughlin's song on repeat at late at night, you know. I can watch those forever and, like, eat popcorn while I watch. I don't care. It doesn't bother me, you know. I guess I'm just dead inside or something. But here's, here's, what, here's what does get me. To see people who don't know God who are lost and hopeless, clinging on to something. Uh, you take a look at verse number two. Paul says here, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge. I had the opportunity to go to El Salvador several years ago, and the word El Salvador literally means the Savior. Is what El Salvador means. You get off there, and there's buses all over town, and the buses is kind of like a privatized bus system where like people can buy a bus and have people ride the bus with them. And so you get these buses that on the side say, Jesus saves on the side of it. And you're like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I show up in a country, and like the first thing I see is a bus that says, Jesus saves. And then on the other side of the bus is a picture of the Virgin Mary with her arms outstretched in a rosary. And you go, oh, wait a minute. I don't think that means what I think it means. And you see people in San Salvador at the, at the, at the, uh, the temple there, or whatever they call it, the cathedral, line out the door where people waiting to get into confession. And you look and you go, oh, wait. 
That's what verse 2 says. They're excited about the things of God, but they don't know God. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. That's why I want you to be a Bible scholar. You need to know the Word of God. That's why we place a high importance on discipleship, because you need to know the Bible so that you can spot truth from error. Because Paul said that Israel, they're excited about the things of God, but they don't even know God. But then it goes on, verse number 3. But they being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is, which is by Jesus Christ, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So they don't know about God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. So what did they do? They made up their own system. And you say, what a bunch of idiots. No, we do the same thing. I don't really want to do that, so I'll do this instead. I don't really want to go to church and hear what the Bible has to say, so I'll make up my own system where I do really good stuff for people. I'm not really a religious person. I'm more of a spiritual person. I met a guy at the, at the store the other day I was talking to, and he asked me what I did for, for a living. I told him I was a pastor. That's usually a conversation killer. So if you're ever in an awkward conversation, you need an out. Tell people you're a pastor. Nine times out of ten, they, they just shut up and don't say anything else. But this guy, uh, he, he continued on and began to ask you stuff, and um, and he gave, I gave him an invitation to our church and invited him, uh, and we, we talked for a little bit, and, and he said, hey, I just want to let you know I gave you a, an extra 10% discount for all the work that you do. I was like, hey, thanks. Everybody loves the discount. I appreciate that. He goes, yeah, I just believe that if I do enough good, that energy just kind of gets out there in the universe and will eventually come back to me. I'd love to have you visit our church sometime, an invitation on the back. Or but what happened? He didn't want to subscribe to God's system, so he created his own system. Hey, if I give this guy a 10% discount, then something good's going to come back to me later, right? Exactly what the Jews did. They didn't want to follow God's plan for righteousness, so they created their own system of righteousness. But here's what verse 4 says. Look at this, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You don't have to be good enough anymore. Jesus welcomes everybody. Jesus didn't die for religious people who had it all together. Jesus died for sinners who need a Savior. And the Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God is the end of the law of righteousness for everyone that believes. You don't have to try to measure up anymore. Jesus has declared you righteous. You don't have to try to be good enough anymore because you could never be good enough. Jesus has made you accepted by God now, again, lest we say, well, now I'm saved. I don't have to do anything. No, we don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we're saved. Now that I'm a child of God, I want everybody to become a child of God. Now that I know forgiveness, I want other people to experience forgiveness. Now that I've been set free from my past, I want everybody I know to be set free. Now that I've been let go of the bondage of sin, Romans chapter 6, I want to go into the jails and break everybody loose from the bondage of sin. I want people to know Jesus. I want people to, to experience the love of Jesus through my life by the way that I treat others. I want people to know the Jesus that I know, and I'm the only way that they'll know it. I want to be a part of what God's doing in this city. Where is Jesus at work, I'll tell you, he's at work in the body of Christ. Awesome. Where can I find that? You're it. We're it. Jesus doesn't have physical hands and feet. You and I are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will not walk down Waimanu Street this week, but you and I will walk down Waimanu Street this week in place of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says when he says we are ambassadors for Christ. That God has left you. Here's what he says. It's the craziest thing in the New Testament, I think. That God has left you in Christ's stead. Instead of Jesus staying here, he left you instead. It's just like, huh, talk about underqualified, you know? No, no, no. We are ambassadors for Christ. The only Jesus some people will know at your workplace is how you carry yourself. So do it well this week. Me, growing up, I just thought I got my ticket punched to heaven. I'm just going to sit back and wait till my number's called. Don't do too much bad stuff. Don't make God look bad, and I think we'll be good. No, no, no. We got a job to do. We got a mission to fulfill. God has saved us, not so we can punch our ticket to heaven, so that we can glorify him with our life. God didn't call out the children of Israel for their benefit. He called them out for the glory of his name, the Bible says. 
God didn't save you because you were lovely and beautiful. God saved you for the glory of his name. Let's live like it this week. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, there's never been a time, a date, a place where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do it today. I'm not talking about how to be a Baptist, how to join our church. We're not going to try to baptize you today. We just want you to know that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. And again, you don't have to attend a class for that. Faith and repentance, that's all God requires of you. But for those of us that are saved, man, let's live like it this week. I've been set free. I've been declared righteous. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my past failures. He sees the blood of his son, and he says, Anthony King, huh, righteous, my son, my boy, get after it this week. That's how I want to live, and I want you to live that way this week, too. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.